You're listening to another episode of The Zag. Eric Rousseau here. Excited to be joined by NLC 2015 Chicago fellow. JC Kibbe is here. Excited to hear what he's up to in the Midwest and all the things he's working on. So let's get to it. All right, JC. Uh, you know, out here I've been in full NLC mode um, as all the applications have come in. What do you remember about hearing of NLC and then applying to NLC in 2015? Uh, you know, honestly, I remember I had been here in Chicago for a couple of years and I was making my way professionally and academically, uh, feeling pretty good about it. But I was really looking for um, a community of people who had the same kind of interests that I did. And uh, I, I've looked in some different places, but I really hadn't found it yet. And I honestly just found out about NLC by Googling around about it, which apparently is a pretty rare way to come into it. It seems <laughs> like most people knew somebody. Um, and the more I read, the more I liked it. So I put in my application and was, was pretty nervous going into that first interview, but uh, everything worked out. I think they were excited to have somebody with a labor background, which is where I was working at the time. And after I got in, I actually realized I knew a couple people who had done it before, and I just never knew. So uh, that was one more thing we had in common. Nice. And then were you born and raised in Chicago, or you grew up somewhere else? Yeah, I was born and raised in Michigan and lived there for 20-something years, and then came to Chicago for grad school and work, and uh, love it here. And we've had a couple of folks from the Chicago chapter on the pod. I always ask them what they feel like it's the biggest misperception about Chicago because Chicago is so often talked about nationally, politically, all those kind of things. What would you say the answer to that question is? Oh, man. Uh, so I uh, hope this doesn't offend you as an Angelino, but uh, I think Chicago <laughs> is the best city in the United States. Um, it's, okay. it's awesome culture, awesome food, um, and you can actually afford to live here. Uh, no offense to my friends in New York. Um, so, you know, I, I think, uh, Donald Trump, uh, uses this as a punching bag a bit, but I can't think of anywhere I would rather live. And I am proud that we ran him out of town when he came here. Nice. Yeah, we are too. Definitely. Uh, well, so listen, I know you were working in the clean energy sector and I, that's a pretty broad category. So give folks the scoop on what that actually means. Sure. So I'm a Midwest, uh, outreach and policy advocate with the union of concerned scientists our climate and energy program. Um, so uh, what that means practically is that I am working to pass pro-clean energy, pro-climate legislation across the Midwest. Right now, uh, I'm focused in Illinois, Michigan, and Minnesota. Um, and what's particularly cool about doing that work with the Union of Concerned Scientists, and I think particularly important right now, um, is that we really have that there's sound science behind what we do and what we say. And a big part of my job is elevating that voice of sound scientists and of science uh, in the policy process. So I've had an opportunity to work to get um, climate scientists and clean energy experts in front of uh, legislators and gubernatorial candidates and uh, folks in Congress. Uh, and I think, you know, now more than ever, that voice is really needed. And I think that action on clean energy and climate at the state level is really needed, especially given that, um, you know, not just a lack of federal leadership, but I'd say we're really moving backwards at the federal level in some ways right now. That's what I was going to ask. Is it a great time to be in the field you're in or a really awful time to be in the field you're in? Uh, I think it, it depends on the day and it, it depends on how you slice it. You know, I'll say that sometimes when you uh, read some of the national headlines about, um, you know, what 
some of the really crazy efforts at the Department of Energy to bail out coal plants or uh, Trump's, you know, wildly uninformed statements about climate change, that can be a little disheartening. Uh, but I think on the flip side of that, and what I really like uh, doing so much work at the state level, is that a lot of states really get it, and there is really cool stuff happening there right now, uh, including particularly in the Midwest, I'd say. Um, so here in Illinois, we just passed in 2016 the Future Energy Jobs Act, which was um, a big, it strengthened our renewable portfolio standards. So we're going to get a huge amount of new wind and solar here in the state. And I think one of the unique things nationally about that and, and what I hope will be a model for, for other states and for future legislation here in Illinois is that there was a really strong equity component to that legislation. Um, there was a community solar program that it created, which means you know anybody can get a subscription or buy their own uh, solar panel somewhere so they can have access to that, even if they don't have all the money up front to put a solar panel on their roof or Maybe they're a renter or they live in a condo building like I do and they don't have their own roof to build on. Uh, there's a low income solar program that is specifically designed to open up uh, access to solar for folks in low income communities. Um, and the jobs of the people that are installing a lot of this new solar uh, through a, a program called Solar for All actually has uh, training programs and pathways to those jobs for formerly incarcerated people uh, people who have uh, been through the foster care system, uh, as well as uh, you know, folks from uh, what are called environmental justice communities, basically frontline communities of coal plants or plants that recently closed. Um, so I think it's important as we're making this transition from you know a, a kind of a 19th century dirty fossil fuel economy to a 21st century clean energy economy that we not only do that for the clean air and the climate and everything else, but I think it's an opportunity. Uh, to make strides on equity and to start to um, compensate a little bit some of the folks who have really been disproportionately impacted uh, by, by fossil fuel pollution and other problems like that. And then what's your stance on trying to balance the necessary changes that a sector like housing or a sector like commercial real estate could could make to have a clean energy conversion, whether it's solar panels or other things, uh, balancing those uh, how to describe it, like balancing a city mandating that folks do those changes or do those renovations to where they live or where they work with affordable housing constraints. And you think about Los Angeles, where we just need so much more housing and any sort of impediment to building it is a real problem. But at the same time, you don't want to build a bunch of new housing that is going to contribute even more to, to climate issues. In the clean energy sector, how do folks balance those two things at once? Sure. Um, so what I think I hear lurking in the background of your question somewhere is your thoughts about uh, California's recent mandate that all new construction have solar panels on it. Um, and I think that, you know, in clean energy uh, and, and I think energy efficiency is a particularly important part of this conversation that it's not always one size fits all. Um, so uh, I think you know what's going what's going to work uh, in one place may not always work in another, and you have to find a, a policy that's going to accommodate that. I think uh, here in Chicago, we are moving in the right direction with some of that. With um, the uh, Chicago, uh, it's called a benchmarking ordinance for our commercial and for our large residential buildings, and more so than solar panels, it's really focused on energy efficiency um, and the first step of that was just creating a program to make sure that 
buildings in Chicago actually were measuring how they were using energy because uh, in a lot of big cities here included, you know, uh, the heating and the lights and the other uh, electricity and, and um, energy components of, of maintaining buildings are a big part of the city's fossil fuel footprint. So the first step of that program is just to make sure that people were measuring that because, as you know, you can't improve what you're not measuring. Um, and the second step of that was to create some transparency uh, in that program so that the public would have access to that information about those buildings' uh, energy efficiency. Uh, and I believe they're moving towards actually giving them a letter grade. So I think there's a couple of cool things that come out of that. The first one is that I think a lot of... Uh, a lot of people, especially you know, people who live in cities like Chicago, you know, see environmental sustainability and lowering their carbon footprint as something that's important. So the same way you would want to see the ingredients uh, in your granola bar or whatever before you ate it, you want to have a good idea of what the carbon footprint of the building that you're living in is. So people can make more informed choices about where they're living. Now, I think there's questions there about who has access to that, but I think transparency is the first step. The other part is, is once these building owners actually see a lot of this out on paper, maybe they just weren't paying attention to it before. And most energy efficiency just makes a ton of economic sense. So if the concern is cost, um, we have so, so far to go on energy efficiency before we run out of things that, you know, that are, are saving money and not costing it. Yeah. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about clean energy, but also a little bit about science. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Zag. We'll be right back. All right, so a couple of short questions. This union of concerned scientists, is this an actual union or just a very clever phrase? <laughs> uh, great question. Uh, we are a union in, in the sense that we're, a, you know, it's a united group of scientists, and that's what the background is. Uh, but we are not an actual union in the sense of a labor union. Okay. <laughs> Although I did then, sorry, work in the, labor, uh, <laughs> in the labor world for several years before this. So I was going to ask, what, what do you feel like will make scientists respected and to some degree cool again? I feel like there's such a animus right now, nationally, of course, in a certain political party to science and scientists. What do you think can really turn the tide on that? Yeah, well, I think part of it is that we get a pretty skewed view um, of what people really think about scientists and what people really think about science. I think that uh, so when you look at the numbers on this, like from the Yale project on climate change communication, which does really great uh, public opinion research on people's views on climate change, there's a really small but really loud group of people. It's about 10% of the population that are actually like aggressively uh, uh, disbelieving the facts on climate change. And unfortunately, um, a lot of or most of um you know, the Republican Party has, has taken that up. Now, there's a, a few exceptions, and that gives me a lot of hope. Folks like uh, Carlos Curbelo, representative down in Florida, who helped found the Climate Solutions Caucus and has been pushing for uh, more Republicans to take up the cause of climate action. Um, but uh, so, so I think we get a disproportionate view because the people who don't believe in climate change have a, you know, have a really big microphone. But if you look at the numbers, the climate scientists are actually the most trusted messenger uh, in America uh, for who people really believe on the issue of climate change. Uh, and I have seen so much awesome activism uh, and, and great work, but again, always grounded in facts the last couple of years by scientists. So um, 
I've taken those folks to, to Capitol Hill and we've had some really great conversations with people who maybe came in, you know, a little skeptical. And once we started giving them the facts about what climate change is going to mean for, for instance, in downstate Illinois, what it's going to mean for agriculture or in northern Michigan, what it's going to mean for, you know, fishing and tourism. And we talk about those real world impacts. All of a sudden, people really appreciate science and they appreciate the impact that it can have on their day to day lives. So um, I think we should not get uh, you know, confused that the public is very much on the side and we're getting a little bit of a biased perspective towards the media um, and that a lot of people are, are really excited about what scientists have to say. And do you ever worry that, say there is an uptick in respect and support for scientists and people's support of them, but in a weird way, do you worry that it then gives people a false sense of security that science will come up with one silver bullet or one pill that we all take that then cures our climate ills, so to speak, as opposed to us seeing ourselves as agents of being able to, to make meaningful change, even on a small scale. But if we all do it and make a big difference, what, what kind of worries do you have that people might see a scientific solution as somebody just need to wait it out and they'll figure it out? Sure. Um, well, I don't worry too much about that because the scientists that I work with and that I talk to on this issue have a crystal clear vision of what it is going to require um, to mitigate catastrophic climate change and the measures that we need to take to do that. So I don't know anybody in the scientific community who is saying that there is a silver bullet for this. I think it's a it's a big undertaking. Uh, you know, I've heard people compare the the action we need to take to mitigate climate change to like the Apollo program or the New Deal. And I do think that that is the kind of ambitious scale that we need to be thinking about. And that's what scientists have been saying uh, for a really long time. And I think if we just listen to them, if anything, we would have a more realistic view of what it's going to take to address this problem. Yeah. Hey, Leslie, give uh, folks uh, something to look for or watch for, maybe politically in your state or nationally on this conversation about clean energy. How can folks kind of follow along and, and make sure things are tracking in the right direction? Yeah. So two things. Uh, number one, on the federal level, uh, one thing that the Trump administration is trying to do right now is to roll back the Clean Power Plan, which was the uh, signature uh, program uh, that Obama created to reduce America's greenhouse gas emissions and, and to get us in line with the uh, Paris Climate Agreement. Um, and so right now, uh, the Trump administration is trying to dismantle the program and replace it with something that they're calling the Affordable Clean Energy Plan, which is neither affordable nor clean. Um, we had the only hearing, the only public hearing in the country about that here in Chicago on Monday. We had great turnout. A lot of local community leaders and elected leaders and scientists came out to talk about why this was a really bad idea. So while there's only one public hearing, you can submit comments online until October 31st. Um, so we can either put the link in the show notes or I can just tell folks to search for uh, affordable clean energy plan uh, comments, uh, get online and tell them to protect the clean power plan to meet America's commitments under the Paris Agreement. That's number one. Number two, I'm really excited here in Illinois about the conversation that's happening around clean energy. I know that you out in California have already uh, made a commitment to 100% clean energy, and that's really awesome, really inspiring, and that is where the conversation is headed in Illinois right now. So uh, uh, a lot of legislators, as well as one of our two major party gubernatorial candidates, J.B. Pritzker, has publicly come out in support of 100% clean energy. Uh, so depending on what things look like in the governor's mansion and in the legislature next year, 
look out for Illinois because I think there's going to be some really exciting stuff happening on clean energy policy here next year. All right. Well, sounds good. Well, thanks for all you're doing. And thanks for everyone for listening to this episode of The Zag. This is our 99th episode. It's pretty amazing. You can find all past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, you name it. You can find it there. Stay tuned for more episodes coming next week. Thanks so much for listening.